0: The book I'm holding shows a young woman immersed in the ocean, her red dress soaked, the waves turbulent around her, but she looks vibrant and determined and focused on the future. Maybe I'm reading a bit too much into this one photo, but this memoir talks about trauma and belonging and the complexity of families and all the different ways that we become who we are. The author is Dr Amy Tunick. She's a Gomorrah academic with three degrees, but she's found that some people find that hard to reconcile with the events of her childhood. The book's called Tell Me Again, and she's speaking to me from Awabakal country in the ABC's Newcastle studios. Amy, hello.
1: Yama yeah, Hillary, Hilary. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, Manjika, great to have you here. There are a lot of hard times described in this book. Why did you want to write it?
1: Yeah, you're right. There, there are, and um, we, we even considered putting some kind of, you know, trigger warning or alert on the book because it does consider some pretty confronting storying and themes. Uh, but... I just think it's important that the complexities of the families and the units that make up our society are kind of not just told, but maybe highlighted in a way that brings a bit more dignity and respect than than some of our families are kind of afforded.
0: And a lot of the, I guess, the judgment that might fall on people in this book might be directed to your parents, though obviously Mm. the book is written in a way that uh, makes it much easier to humanise them than judge them. Your parents actually helped you put this book together. Tell us about their involvement and what that was like for them.
1: I knew that I could write it without their support, but I didn't want to. And I also knew the stories would be richer for their input, so... Each time I wrote a story, because I wrote them each individually and they can be read as standalone stories or the book can be read as a whole, I would take it to the person that was in the book when it's a family member um, and and show them. And that was really special actually because what my parents learnt was that I remembered it with more generosity and less judgement than they kind of had assumed. And they were also able to say... Oh, well, you know, this also happened that day or um, you've used this imagery, but that isn't out of your imagining. That's actually um, something that happened. And and so they were able to give additional elements because some of the storying in there is from when I'm very young. And so they were really able to help me flesh out some of the memorying that maybe wasn't as crisp as... um, as it needed to be. And so it was a beautiful reciprocal kind of set of moments where I would take the story and my parents would read it and then I'd come back with them and they would, you know, say, this bit's really good, but th- these other people were also there or uh, do you remember this detail? And the more we'd talk about it, the more I'd be able to remember certain elements. And and so it turned into really lovely moments. And I do share about, uh, I, had, I had a little brother who passed away and, you know, obviously something that's that sensitive, like that loss is first and foremost, my parents' loss. So I wanted to have their support and their blessing in sharing the story, and, um, and, I, and I was able to get that.
0: And I mean, that as you say, I mean, that's that's a big loss and it does affect the whole family. Did the process of talking to your parents about the things that happened in your shared past um, illuminate something about what role shame might have played for them throughout all your lives, Amy?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I, I suspect that, you know, what I do as an adult in my career is I'm an academic, so I spend my days talking to people and kind of overthinking about things and looking into and analysing systems and really being able to story back on those moments which I initially experienced as a child with no power and very little understanding of the systems at play. Being able to go back to those moments and talk with my parents as adults about them, but with that additional knowledge that I now have as someone who does formally and professionally research systems, uh, it really helped me better understand what it was like for my parents and that was quite healing for me as well. I was able to let go of some of the pain that I'd been carrying. Well,
0: as you say, storying is such a huge part of this book and and a part of your life and that title of the
1: book, it's called Tell Me Again. Why Mm. is it called that? every chapter had its own title. Uh, And Tell Me Again came from the story about my story of being born and the way that linked up with my first experience of giving birth. And when I was a kid, I used to say to my parents, tell me again about the night I was born. Tell me again about the night I was born. And so that that chapter was actually called Tell Me Again About the Night I Was Born. But the process of writing the stories and looking back and the lessons that I had to learn and learn again and the experiences that I lived through but then I learned through additionally as an adult as I gained more knowledge and, you know, obviously in becoming a parent myself and experiencing adulthood, you do develop greater understanding and depth of awareness of how difficult things can be and how much um, when people are struggling with being criminalised, being incarcerated, how disempowered they are and how often choices are so limited that they're hardly a choice and so it was that idea of, While I'm sharing with the reader my stories, I also was learning through them again and again in an ongoing way. So it it became tell me again.
0: And can you tell us a bit about the contrast between that story that your parents repeatedly told you with with joy, you know, during your (laughs) childhood and the one that they eventually told you?
1: Yeah, I mean, for context, I was a very annoying child. Um, <laughs> I like bright red hair. I was ridiculously loud and, and a total chatterbox. And I think I, I would have been a difficult child for any parents. But if you imagine parents who had substantial trauma of their own, mental health issues, addiction issues, um, you know, were being criminalised. Oftentimes my mum was parenting solo because my father was locked up. And they just had this rambunctious, hyperactive, red-headed child that had a 50 million questions all the time Uh, and they used to tell me the story of, of how I was born and it was this story of you know a swift birth and just being loved immediately and surrounded by family and and so I grew up thinking, you know, when the time comes that I give birth, I can expect this 20-minute labour. And, you know, I remember asking my mum when I was a bit older, like, did you did you have pain relief? Like, did you get one of those epidurals that I'd heard of? And my mum was like, oh, no, I didn't have any of that. Um, and then when I was, you know, overdue in the, the term, although I don't really, I, you know, you don't really get overdue. Um, I was like 41 weeks pregnant with my first pregnancy and uh, my parents finally fessed up to the fact that uh, you know, mum, mum was using heroin when she gave birth to me. So you don't need an epidural when you've um, got heavy drugs in your system. And actually, the label was wasn't twenty minutes. Mum was just very, very self-medicated, uh, and so she'd had probably three-day labours with us. And I went on to have two to three-day labours with my own births because uh, that's what's normal and healthy for us. That's not that's how it's meant to be. Um, But that moment of the tension between my mum and my dad, when my dad puts it on my mum and says, are you going to tell her? Uh, Like, don't you think it's time? Because I was ready to basically go into labour myself and just having to be told again, but this time it's a new story and realising that that impacts my storying and the experience that I'm about to have um, was pretty huge. and And I, I mean, there's amusing parts in that. It's that tension though, right? Like everyone has elements of their own life that if if you do go on to have children, you don't necessarily want your children knowing some of the things that you've been up to or some of the mistakes that you've known. So I think there's a bravery and a courage in them actually saying, look we weren't completely honest with you all those times we told you about your birth story and we're going to, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable for us, but we're going to tell you the truth now that it's time for you to give birth so that you are a little bit more prepared and, And I I hope that in the storying, that tension between, you know, obviously it's a difficult circumstance and and it's horrid that mum was in the position she was when she did give birth to me. But I think it takes a lot of courage to look at your adult child and say, look, I'm sorry, I I didn't tell you the truth and now I'm going to because I need to, even though it's not going to put me in a good light. And I hope that that's in the storying for the reader as well.
0: There's a really powerful moment in the book, Amy, when you write about give, being given an opioid painkiller and realising a bit of what role it might have played for your parents. Can you tell us about that?
1: So for context, I, I have endometriosis, as a lot of um, female people do.
0: Yep, high-fiving and, you here. Um,
1: yeah, it's horrible. And when the time finally came that I was admitted for the pain, we didn't know what I actually had or what was wrong. We just knew, you know, I was quite sick and I was given, um, you know, a synthetic opioid and I, it just hit me with such force. They thought at first that it was, you know, a really bad side effect. There was a sense of panic. And I just felt like the world got so quiet and still. And it just had this impact on me that I'd, I'd never experienced before. And while I recognised that a synthetic opioid and actual heroin don't have quite the same impact on the body, what I realised in that moment was that There was something delightfully peaceful in just being out of the world a little bit. And I think growing up, one of the hardest things was this fear or this thought that would pop into your head that your parents loved and wanted drugs more than you. You know, when you're watching them make bad decisions that impact your life and they're driven by the intensity of addiction. As a child, you don't have the cognitive ability to recognise that these are people doing their best in really hard situations, that they don't want to be creating these situations for their family, that they don't want to be impoverished, uh, you know, that they don't want to be making the decisions that they were making when they were in the grip of addiction. And the storying that I was telling myself as a kid was, well, I'm not enough, that actually they love that more than they love me and even though they gave me lots of love and they certainly never said words to those effect um that was i think the quiet little voice the little fear that i had as a child and the day that uh, i had this adverse reaction to synthetic opioids i realized it, it wasn't so much this idea of you know being hungry and chasing something that would fill your belly it was more when the world is so loud to have a moment of peace when, when things are so hard or you're in so much pain, to actually just have a break from that is really hard to not want to cling on to. And it, just, it, it was just this little moment of unlocking for me where I realised it was far more complicated and complex than I'd previously thought of, and it, it just helped soften me towards my parents' experiences. I think it helped me see them as whole people who we're trying to parent and I think we forget that about people who produce children and are doing their best to raise them that they continue to exist as individuals as humans as people and for me that was a big moment in just filling out my understanding just a little bit more
0: yeah and it's something we really hope our own children understand about us one day isn't it that that the love the enormous love can coexist with hardship or volatility or things like that Amy, I want to go back to six-year-old Amy. I love Mm six-year-old Amy. She's great. (laughs) But, I mean, she's existing amongst this hardship. Sometimes food's hard to come by. The home could be, you know, a a place of volatility. Six-year-old Amy's watching Cinderella videos on repeat, and Mm. one day she has a conversation with your nan and makes Mm. a decision about her future.
1: What, What happened there? So when I was a kid, and I know it, it's it's one of the, the really hard facts that's in the book, but by the time I was six, I knew we were poor. I knew we were poor and I hated it. I knew that I didn't have the lunchbox and the food that my friends had, and I didn't have the number of uniforms or, you know, a whole uniform like my friends did at school. And, and I loved being at school, so I wanted to be at school, but I really noticed those differences and... I'd had, you know, I, I was often with my grandparents, and and particularly my grandfather, who was and continues to be a fantastic influence on my life. Um, but I remember this moment where I was just so fed up. I was hungry. I was lacking. And I remember saying to my nan, and she was at a point of deep stress, uh, and she was mixing a cake or something like that in her kitchen, in her housing commission kitchen. And um, I remember just saying to her, like, Nan, what do I have to do to not be poor when I grow up? And her answer was so, I, I suspect, very flippantly given. Um, but she said, Be a lawyer. Because at the time they were paying my dad's lawyer's fees because um, he was, uh, you know, he'd been charged with robbing banks again. Um, and she said it, I think, having no idea of the impact it was going to have on me. Um, but I took her so seriously. She said, Be a lawyer. And so I said, okay, what do I have to do to be a lawyer? And she said, go to university. And I walked out onto the metal green steps of my grandfather's house that are still there. My children play on those steps today. And I remember sitting there and thinking, okay, when I grow up, I'm going to university and I'm going to marry a prince. I'm going to be a princess with university degrees, who's a lawyer, because I was six. (laughs) Um, But that commitment to this really staunch belief that university was the key to unlocking some empowerment for me grew and grew into almost like an obsessive energy where come hell or high water, I was going to finish year 12 because I didn't know about alternate pathways. I didn't know, you know, you can go to TAFE these days and do a course to go to university. I didn't know about any of that because I didn't know anyone who'd been to university well, everyone in my life constantly said to me, yeah, you're going to go to university. Like, I'd tell people from such a young age, I'm going to university, and they'd be like, yeah, Amy, you're going to university. And I was great at school. I, I test very well. That's not actually a measure of a person's intelligence, but it is how it's often perceived in this society, and I test well. So I'd get the marks, and the teachers would be like, oh, you're going to grow up to go to university. And my grandparents would say, you're going to go to university. And my parents would say, you're going to go to university. No one actually like, could tell me what university was, but in my mind it was the key to making sure that I wouldn't be poor when I was an adult and that I could support my parents and my grandparents to also not be poor because I hated that my family had lack and I just wanted everyone to have enough. Um, and that commitment didn't change. I, it drove me to go to university... Um, I did some law courses and hated it Did not become a lawyer, <laughs> but I was not leaving uni without a degree. And, and then I went back and I did a master's and I worked for a while as a school teacher and then I went back and I did a PhD. Um, but it all started with just this idea of what do I have to do to not be poor? And a comment from my nan that I don't even know if she remembers that comment. Actually, I should ask her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we're speaking to Amy Tuning. She's got three degrees now. She definitely fulfilled yeah. the the dream of six year old Amy and her memoir. Not a princess though. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I look at the cover, front cover photo of this memoir. Tell me again, and it's a pretty cool dress. I don't know. But I mean that that six year old Amy had to go through a lot to get to school. As you say, you test well, but then there were all these structures that you had to kind of manage to uh, to get through high school, uh, and then to get into mm. university. And as a young person, you were going through them while you were experiencing poverty and hunger and racism and at different points, abandonment by your family, neglect and being judged as less than other people because of your circumstances. Why do you think so many adults in your interactions, teachers, employers, for example, mostly didn't help or understand what you needed at that point?
1: I think an issue, and I say this both as someone with lived experience, but also someone who teachers formally into the education system as an academic. Um, I think one of the issues we really have in our society is the ongoing dehumanisation of people who experience things like poverty, incarceration, uh, addiction, mental health issues, even chronic illness. Um, There's this idea which is quite forcefully pushed, uh, I think, through politics, politicians, um, through policy, through media coverage, that anyone who isn't making it or isn't successful in this country doesn't want to be. They're lazy, they're bludgers, that, you know, um, you know, it's the whole, oh, it should be a trampoline, not a hammock nonsense. When, you know, people don't want to live in poverty. People don't want to experience homelessness. People don't want to be addicted um, to whatever thing that they're addicted to. These are struggles that if we recognised the humanity of our fellows, then we would be driven to action, and that would be very disruptive to the one percent, the two percent, the people who actively benefit from using, you know, um, disempowerment as a way to have cheap labor, as a way of exploiting workers, and, you know, making sure they own multiple properties when we have a housing crisis in this country. And so we have this real push, this agenda that, that filters throughout pretty much every element of our society that says that anyone who's living in poverty deserves to be there. That if you're successful, it's because you worked harder. It's because you're more deserving. And that's just not true. And so as a child... I was treated by many people as worthless. I was treated as having no worth because my family was treated as worthless. My family unit, when you're a child, you are seen as part of your family unit. And I see this now as an adult. Um, you know, when people are raised wealthy and in privilege, then their success is seen as their right that, oh, well, they must work really hard and deserve it. And people who grow up with no safety net, with no generational wealth and plenty of generational trauma, without things like financial literacy and the supports to get them in the door in certain places, or, you know, even, even dinner table conversations, you know, as someone who now has multiple degrees, my children are growing up hearing about certain things at the table that then support them to do better at school. And it's not that my children are more deserving. It's just that I now have a skill set. I now have tools that I'm giving to them. They're not earning them. I give them to them because they're my children. But that's not how privilege is often perceived in this country. If you're lacking, it's as though you deserve to be lacking. You don't deserve, you know, a step up. Um, and when I was a kid, I was treated like my worth was that of my parents and my parents were treated as having no worth. And and what I found fascinating was then when I began to hit certain metrics, which our society deems successful, so multiple degrees, full-time employment. I've been going on television now for years. um, I write in the media. I get to be in magazine articles. um, There was this idea of, oh, but that's because you're separate from your family. You're this in spite of your family. Your success has nothing to do with your family. And I started to really reflect on that, like, oh, okay, so when I was a kid and I had no power, I was nothing because you thought my family was nothing. But now that I'm apparently something and someone, my family don't get to claim that, do they? Because that's so disruptive to this idea that success comes as something that you earn and is your right when you're raised well. Well, I wasn't raised well. I went to public schools. I grew up hungry. I was raised by, you know, a bank robber and a bartender who both struggled with addiction my whole life. Um, and that's a really hard pill to swallow that actually I was raised well, even if I was raised by people that this society says have limited worth. My parents are whole people. They are worthy of dignity and respect. They are loving people who taught me the skills that I needed to survive in what are often gross environments. Like the academy can be very violent and I'm not responsible for the violence inflicted upon me in these systems, but my parents have gone a long way to contributing to my ability to survive that violence. And I just find that contrast fascinating, that idea that you're worth nothing as a child if you're not from a good family, that you're worth being harassed, that your life is worth less if you live in a low socioeconomic community, um, when that's just nonsensical. Amy, I understand that your
0: mother passed away recently. I'm sorry for your loss. Rather than the the quick judgment that people might spring to about parents, your parents that you you know you've you've described often happens. What would you like readers to take away about your experience and your family's experience?
1: Yeah, thank you, my mum. Sorry, I'm a bit choked up. Take, um, take as much time as you need. My mum was a wild, beautiful woman. She was fierce and she knew how to speak up. She never shushed me. Um, She raised me to speak up in environments where things weren't just. She taught me the value of code switching. Um, Anyone who knows me in real life knows that I swear like a sailor. Um, She taught me the value of moderating my language for the environment that I'm in and recognizing people's worth and their whole existence. She taught me to people watch, to observe people and recognise that there are a million different circumstances and moments that led up to them coming into this moment where you're meeting them and that everyone that you meet has something that you can learn from. And I just, I'm so grateful for her. And she loved the book. She was really proud of it, um, even though the story stories being told a hard and She's not always portrayed in a great light. She recognised the honesty and, and my mum loved the the brutal beauty of honesty. And I just think, you know, my mum was fiercely intelligent and she didn't have a PhD, but had she had more access to healing and more opportunity, she was more than capable of completing one. Um. And my dad is fierce. He's an advocate. He also speaks up against injustice. And, you know, growing up, anyone who was hungry was welcome at our table. Um, You know, I remember as a kid, and this is one of those funny little stories, but it was swimming lessons time. And and a lot of the kids in my school didn't have a lot or or enough. And, um, you know, dad Dad shoplifted me some, some goggles for swimming lessons. But He actually shoplifted two pairs, even though the risk was higher because there was another kid in the car with us and, um, you know, he left us in the car and when he came out from the shop, he had two pairs of of swimming goggles because it was never enough to just provide for his own children. Like he was always worried about any child who was, you know, with us. Um, And that kind of generosity, that community care might sit in contrast with people's understanding, like people might go, oh, it's wrong to steal, but... You know at the end of the day my parents were doing the best that they could with their limited means very limited formal education no safety net themselves um and they've raised me to be the person that has attained and achieved all the shiny things and uh yeah I, I'm very sad my mum's not here for the launch um but she loved the book and um and she was very proud of it. And, and I hope that people see the complexity that was part of her beauty um, in the book.
0: It is a fierce and complex book in itself too. It's a memoir called Tell Me Again. Amy tunick thank you so much for joining us on Life Matters today. Really grateful to have your time. Thank you for having me, Hilary. It is a pleasure. Dr Amy Tunig is a gomeroy academic and author. Uh, the book is out now. It's a memoir called Tell Me Again.
1: Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.